Welcome, everybody, to the Now Next podcast. I am Drew Tucker. I'm the university pastor, director for the Center for Faith and Learning here at Capital University. And I am so pumped to welcome my co-hosts as well. We have Mary Claire Kunkel. Hello, this is me. That's her. You heard her voice. It was right there. And Sammy DiBiaso. Hello, hello. They are students here at Capital University. Mary Claire is a senior and Sammy is a second year student at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. And we are hosting this series of podcasts to talk about vocational exploration. Mary Claire, what is all of that about? Well, it's centered in vocation, which is any meaningful life-giving work for the world. And the 4D faith is the model used to kind of navigate finding your vocation. So there's discovery, which is what we're talking about today specifically, as well as discernment, development, and decisions. But it's not a linear process. Um, These things can happen together. They can happen out of order, but this is just the order we're going through to kind of talk about them. Um, So today we're talking about discovery, and we want to emphasize the fact that not everyone discovers that their vocation is rostered ministry in the church, but that is a valid vocation. And there's ways to have God in all parts of your life, including your career. Roster ministry is what some people call being a pastor or a deacon, someone officially hired by the church, but other people use different language for that. What we mean is that you don't have to be a pastor to be called. You don't have to be a deacon to be called, that God calls us in all sorts of different ways, like Mary Claire said. Today we have with us Reverend Lamont Anthony Wells, who is the Program Director for Campus Ministry in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. He is also the current National President of the African Descent Lutheran Association in the ELCA. A dynamic speaker and prophetic preacher, Reverend Wells is frequently called to address organizations, churches, conferences, convocations, retreats, and workshops in various public, social, and ecumenical communities. His prophetic message of ecumenism and social justice motivates him as a leader, team builder, and community organizer. Lamont, we're so excited to be talking with you today. So this episode, we're going to be focusing on one of our four Ds, which is discovery. And so really we want to focus in on exploring your possibilities to reveal potential. And this is essential because we kind of like need to know what options are available to us before we do anything else. We really can't get anywhere like we want to go without seeing opportunities before us. And I think that sounds very simple. And in some cases it is, But I also think, particularly for myself, discovery is maybe one of my favorite and least favorite parts of vocational exploration, because I think it's okay that it can be both exciting and overwhelming at the same time, when there are so many opportunities for us to do and explore and are are available to us, I think it can feel pretty exhausting, maybe before we've even gotten started. And so I just want to name like, that's okay. And I think that sometimes I need to be reminded that, that it's, it's okay to be overwhelmed in the process. And the good news is, as we'll explore in this podcast, is it's not something that we have to do alone. And also there's no right or wrong in vocational exploration and there's no singular or linear path. And I think 
sometimes discovery is both an active or a passive process. And so I'm wondering if one of y'all could tell us about a time in your life where maybe you've taken an opportunity that led you to a new or unexpected discovery. Yeah, so honestly, uh, this call where I am at right now was not an intent that I had. I was three years into campus ministry in Radford, Virginia, working at Radford University in Virginia Tech. And then my sister's cancer diagnosis really reshaped my priorities. And so it was not at all something that I was looking for, clearly, right? Those kinds of things that happen in our lives, the traumas are not what we're anticipating opening up something that we love. But because of that, I began to look for calls back in Ohio that would get us closer. And it was through that process that led to the discovery that Capital had an open position as university pastor and that ultimately led to my role here with the university and the seminary and the Center for Faith and Learning. So that's one of the things that's, I think, really important about discovery is that it doesn't mean those bad things are good. It doesn't mean that God made those bad things happen, but it does mean it can reshape our priorities that open us up to new things that God has in store for us. And that's what I found really important in my journey. In the way that you kind of named it, it's almost like a revealing, like sometimes opportunities can be a revealing to our priorities and a revealing to something about ourselves that we just didn't know prior or it hadn't been unearthed yet. For me, an example I like to say is when I was first trying to figure out where I wanted to go to college back in high school, I was set on doing music. I was going to do music therapy. I looked at a bunch of schools for music therapy. And then I realized that in order to do music in college or professionally, you have to have a very, very strong passion for it. And I knew music wasn't coursing through my veins enough to be able to dedicate all of that time to it without that passion getting snuffed out. And my sister was going to Capitol at the time and she said, hey, come and just visit. And I ended up falling in love with the campus and the way people interacted with each other. And if I hadn't removed my tunnel vision and realized I should expand out and look at other options, I wouldn't have ended up being where I'm at or doing what I'm doing. Yeah, for, for me, I find um, one of the most powerful moments of discovery for me was when I left some of the historically Black traditions. I was a part of the Church of God in Christ and the um, National Baptist Convention USA Incorporated and came into the ELCA now almost 26 years ago. It was that element of discovery of kind of looking for an looking for a place and space of opportunity and freedom that allowed me to uh, operate and use my gifts in a way that the religious ecclesiastical foundations of my past at that time, because I was making the shift, were not allowing. There was a lot of things concerning patriarchy that I didn't agree with. There were things about uh, other different types of freedoms that seemed unavailable to me in those traditions at that time. But there was some great beauty in it as well. So it was hard to make the transition, but it was that element of the unknown 
in the discovery that let me let me try this this branch of Zion as we would call it called Lutheranism in um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So that level of opportunity and expectation of something new, something different, something other, and that I have an opportunity to engage in that space and moment is very very powerful for me, particularly in the element of finding newness and making discovery. Exactly what you're hitting on with the freedom aspect is just this unknown can be filled with so much possibility for exploration that it's exciting. And I think sometimes we can meet that with tension with either like for myself, I tend to when there is this possibility and unknown, I tend to say, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? I throw around the never word probably way too much. Me too. And then, <laughs> and then just run away. Maybe I wasn't ready for that opportunity, but eventually came to this realization that it was a space for me to be in freedom. And that takes a lot of faith. Like you really have to really trust the moment. You have to trust the universe. You have to trust everything that you don't know. Because in, mm -hmm. in, the, in discovery, there are too many elements that are unknown in order for you to make an effective calculated decision, which is very, very hard. So it's really a faithful move um, in a way. And that's beautiful, especially once after you've discovered it, that uh, you made the good choice or right choice. Absolutely. And I think one thing that you're also hitting on that's almost another side to the coin is calculation. In a lot of cases, sometimes too, like I think it's just really important to name that sometimes the maps that we're given or the spaces for us to discover are just flat out wrong. For example, the Mercator projection is a super popular map that represents like the Earth's curved surface, but on a flat map. And so like we've all seen this map in every single classroom, maybe office building that we've ever been a part of. And the issue with that map is that it's almost embedded in our understanding of what the world looks like. And unfortunately, the issue of that is that it, it disproportions the size of countries and continents. For example, on many of those maps, the size of Greenland is the same size as South America, when in fact Greenland is only one eighth of the size of South America. Or, for example, like South Africa in its actual size is the size of two Texases put together. And if you were to cut out the pieces, they just absolutely do not match. And so discovery maybe isn't just getting a bunch of maps and then choosing one of them. It's also discerning the truth and intention behind those maps that can also lead us to new discoveries about ourselves and the world. Right. Like part of the reason those maps are so distorted is because of the, you know, you mentioned tunnel vision before the reality that the map makers had a very Eurocentric or North American centric view of the world. Right. So, and the funny thing is, like you mentioned with Greenland, that doesn't always lead to an outsized version of it, but it always leads to a distorted version of it. Right. If we're only looking right. at our part of the world as important or necessary, defining what is East or West from our point in place alone, then we're going to distort the whole picture. And so having not just other maps, but being willing to build and create our own maps in this process and inviting critique from people who we haven't maybe listened to before or who haven't been given the opportunity to create a map in the first place, that's the kind of thing that can really help us to have, have a much more real and authentic and true perspective on the journeys that we're on and the roads that we might take or not take. And if you've been walking with us for a while, you'll know that 
we're big into uh, nautical themes. And I think this, this idea of maps ties in very well with that, with discovery and exploration. We have, based off of the history that we're taught, draw a connection with those of the likes of like Magellan and Christopher Columbus. And we want to make it very clear that like this is definitely not a Christopher Columbus fan club, you know, could not be further from it. But the fact that discovery is a part of many cultures, like many of the Polynesian cultures, there is this rich tradition of wayfinding and it's a community endeavor. And so maybe there's a map, but it's drawn by other people you haven't met yet or you found along the way. So sometimes you do have to go out and you have to make your own map, but sometimes you find people that add in little bits to your map because just because you're discovering something for the first time doesn't mean it's new to everyone. Someone else might already be living that. So it's all about just being willing to venture off of the island or venturing off of the place where you're currently resting. Yeah, one of the people that if you're listening to this and you're interested in sort of a, a story of sailors that you might not hear in most sort of typical 10th grade U.S. history courses is look up Zhang He, who is from China and had an armada, had this sort of vast fleet of ships that rivaled or exceeded anything that we can think of in terms of European cultures and had its own explorations through Polynesia and all the way to India and what would have been the eastern part of Africa from their voyages, right? So there are these people who have, have done this kind of exploration that maybe because of how we tell our stories or what stories we find valuable that we don't actually hear about their discoveries or their processes and the journeys that they've led. And the, uh, the other element of discovery for me, particularly coming out of an Afrocentric uh, understanding of the pain of what discovery has done is there's nothing wrong with discovery. Like it's, it's wonderful to explore and find things new, but how you claim what is discovered and the level of hegemony or ownership, even of how you engage that moment is key and important. So I think we're in a season in the world where there's a greater need to redraw a whole lot of maps mm. that have been misengaged and misinterpreted and misspoken or misstated or and redrawn in such a way that it makes it more true and authentic, but embrace the whole level of finding out something new without having to oppressively own it. There's a level of exploration that is appreciative of what you discover uh, rather than an uh, element of dominating or altering or shifting that which you are commodifying in a lot of ways, what you discover. So I think we're in a culture now that discovery can embrace that in its truest sense and divorce and divest ourselves of that need to control what we find out. And that is such a, it's, it's such a distorted view of reality, right? It's, and it's not something that we've ever applied in most other arenas. Like, oh, I have found this thing. Now it belongs to me. I don't get to walk into a building and say, oh, this, I've never seen this before. It must be new. And now it's mine. That's not how life works. And so when we treat discovery that way, like you said, it's hegemonic. It is, it's, you know, it's the worst version of discovery when discovery is for what you can acquire and produce. Not right. every discovery is for us. I really like that, that not every discovery is for us. Just because we discover something doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be part 
of our vocation or our mission. It could just be some sort of knowledge that we notch into our brain or another tool that we put in our tool belt. So the goal of this conversation is we hope to help you discover how God is present in your life and the vocational possibilities God has opened to you. So first off, Lamont, thank you for being with us. How long have you been in the role of program director for campus ministry at the ELCA now? It's actually 11 months today. Really? Today might be 11 months. Yes. Mm -hmm. I feel like we should have had a cupcake or something like this. this Exactly. I want my cupcake. (laughs) (laughs) You have this way of introducing yourself at gatherings that I just find so joyful. And it starts with hippopotamus happy. I was wondering if you would do that for us. It just makes an impact on me. I wanted Sammy and Mary Claire to hear it. (laughs) I got that from years ago from a preacher, uh, A. Lewis Patterson from Houston area. And I went to school with his son, one of my classmates at Morehouse. And I was just in awe of his ability as a pulpiteer and to preach. And he would always begin about his presence being there as being hippopotamus happy and peacock proud to be in their midst. So I kind of stole it years ago and have been using it for over 20 something years. It's a really a true factor of how I feel when I get invitations and to, to operate in my calling. I become happy and very proud to participate and to experience and discover even the moment that's about to happen. I love that because I had no idea that that had come from another person preacher, like something that you had discovered as a young preacher and incorporated into your own identity. These are the things that you can't plan for podcasts that I just really love that connect. And that really connects because one of the things I'm curious about, you know, we've talked about maps and the ways that we have maps that are given to us. As you started to explore your own vocation before you were the Reverend Lamont Wells, before you knew exactly what life was going to look like, what kind of maps were you given to explore who you felt God was calling you to be? So I would say at a younger age, to be honest, and because I've been uncovering and unraveling and discovering some new things about me based upon the foundations in which I was given. So I would think that one of the earliest maps that I remember being given was a respectability politics map. Mm -hmm. I kind of grew up in understanding that there were certain things that I needed to do, ways I needed to act, uh, morals in which I needed to engage and to present myself in a way that was palatable for the masses or others. Since then, I have been redrawing that respectability politics map and actually ripping it up and throwing, <laughs> even throwing it away, which was also a part of something that I had learned to grow, but it was kind of like living in multiple worlds. I remember fundamentally one of the earliest maps that I had taught me kind of a level of restricting. Do this, don't do that, in order to appear certain kinds of ways. And it was funny, I learned the term respectability politics uh, as a map um, from Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham when I went to Harvard. And it gave me the language for that which I was operating and flowing through my life. We don't realize that we're given a map sometimes until we get the language for it or the clarity for it or someone shows us how it's not necessarily the real thing, but it's one way of thinking about the world. And we realize that that is what has shaped our past. And how great to sit at the feet of elders who have coined and led that. Oh, that's beautiful. I fought it a lot because I didn't realize that it was me, but it was like she held a mirror up to me and Mm -hmm. I realized exactly what it was. And that's how I came to some more self-discovery for my life. So in that process, I assume that was a part of how you really discovered and claimed your calling. Can you tell us about some of that, like how you discovered 
your calling and what you understand to be your vocation in life. Definitely. In my case, I was called uh, at an early age and I, I'll never forget it. It was Simon's Day Camp. And I remember being on the swings in the playground and having this spiritual supernatural experience while on a swing. But for me, the steps that it took to to see and experience my calling and have my calling affirmed for many, many years by the community that embraced me. So I went to Atlanta and I went to Morehouse and then I worked for the state of Georgia for a while. I was the grants administrator for Fulton County Department of Family and Children's Services, which required us to have stronger connections with government and religious institutions and engaging those communities and finding ways for us to do exploration and to do ministry, what I now called ministry and to do social services together. And I met a Lutheran preacher who kind of recruited me, Dr. Wilson Arthur Lewis. He engaged me and said, God is all in you. God is all around you and operating and working through you. And I think you would appreciate the level of theological grace that the Lutheran church can provide. And I've been here. So at that time, because I had great gifts in working with civic engagement and community engagement and understanding how to engage people in the Afrocentric community, the Atlanta University Center was something that was offered to me as my first call as campus pastor of the Atlanta University Center, which is a consortium of six historically black colleges, universities, and seminaries. When you're in the process of discovery, how can you tell if it's something that you should be discovering and something that is valid and should be expanded upon further versus something of, oh, that exists, but maybe that's not for me? Like, how, do you, how can you tell what is God and what isn't? It's a process. It's not just a decision. And engaging the process is a part of that discovery. So like I told you, I, I was called at 11, but I didn't preach my trial sermon and formalize what I discovered at 11 until I was in my freshman year at Morehouse. But in that process, the journey of that process, I learned a lot, things were reaffirmed and confirmed that helped kind of like a guided map even to the full the fulfillment or the manifestation of that which was an idea. If I were to even go deep to tell you about the actual call that I had and how it kept coming to me, it wasn't just one time I would have dreams and I saw myself in the future, if you will. Literally, I saw myself preaching at the church that I grew up in where I preached my trial sermon or what we call an initial sermon. And I was much older and even the physical structure of that space was different than it was when I had my first call or while I was having the dreams. But when it manifested or came to pass or came to fulfillment, it was a divine manifestation of everything that I had dreamed, everything that people had encouraged me and prompted me and affirmed me to be. So it was my engagement of a process, not the arrogance or the confidence of a decision. I think it's easy for us when we discover to just jump right to discernment. Like it's easy for us to be like, oh, I have this thing. Okay, I need to run with it. It's hard. And I think because of the system that we live in, in the Western individualistic capitalist system, like it's easy for us to just jump on things rather than sit and engage with them. And I think that is something I certainly have not figured out. And I super appreciate you sharing, Lamont. Um, 
So I think it's just, it's hard to sit with like discovery too. Well, especially when, you know, as we said earlier, when not every discovery belongs to us, part of sitting with it means we have to recognize that we don't own it, that we don't control it, that, that it is an encounter with something other and holy, that it is not necessarily something that we get to, to capitalize, right? It is something that might affect us rather than us affecting it. Lamont, earlier you said that you came into the ELCA kind of looking for sort of freedom and opportunity that you wouldn't have had elsewhere, but the foundations in those traditions brought you to express them in new ways in the ELCA. And also, I remember being at the churchwide assembly when you, as the president of the African Descent Lutheran Association, received and then responded to the apology to people of African descent. And that is something that, I mean, it is seared in my memory as a moment of truth telling because of the pain that this church has caused to people of African descent. And so I'm curious, like you joined for those reasons. What did you find as you discovered that? And what are you discovering now that you think is important to the continued life of this church and your role as a program director in the church? Drew, that's tough because as as much as I was excited about the, the newness of discovering the opportunities that I talked about earlier, I've been in this church long enough now. Sometime I've asked myself and God, why? Did you bring me here? Why do you have me here? I've even asked for release and even have many times in all honesty considered whether my gifts could be used better somewhere else. I often think about the tension of, of knowing what to do and which way to go and what to discover that was held with Absalom Jones, who's a part of the Episcopal Church, and Richard Allen there in Philadelphia. When they all walked out of St. George Church and all the stuff that was going on during that particular period of time in history at the inception of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, I wonder sometimes why did Absalom Jones stay and what was the force that made Richard Allen Allen leave and start their own um, historically now Black institution denomination, the AME tradition, and others. We can go to different areas. And for me, I thought, well, I had worked in historically Black denominations before, and I'm still a part of them. I can show up to any Church of God in Christ. I can show up to any African Methodist, Episcopal Zion tradition, CME tradition, and, and I can engage in those because it's a part of who I am. But yet I saw the giftedness that I could bring to this church. So I see what Absalom Jones was trying to do by staying and helping that church. And I intend in the same way to become anti-racist and to also free those of us who are of African descent in the ELCA and other Lutheran traditions, because we, we have connections with them, to divorce ourselves and divest from internalized racial oppression. Mm -hmm. So I see myself still as a liberator in the midst of this particular denomination as Pew Foundation has limited us, because I think it's a limitation that we are the whitest church in America. Mm -hmm. So I've seen myself staying and being a part of the conversation and the engagement of this church as an opportunity, as a catalyst for change to help myself and others discover that there is a freedom and that there is a God who loves us in spite of the pain that may be attacking us or the pain that we experience, but to bring us to a sense of wholeness, freedom, in God's grace. So what you talk about and seeing me last year 
at the churchwide assembly, that was a tough time. You, you have to understand that that was probably the toughest time in my life uh, because at that very same time, the church was doing what it does in a racist fashion of ousting and defrocking the first installed African-American female bishop, Vivian Thomas Brightfell at that time. And there were people that were telling me, don't accept the apology, don't you dare, hold the church accountable. And I had to find the balance, the grace-filled balance, truthful balance, the authentic balance to make a response. And I did the best that I could, but it was a very tough discussion because of the words of my literary mentor, James Baldwin, and I say this often, as he said, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. And that's something that I say to the ELCA and to many churches all the time. It's tough for me and tough for us as people of African descent and Black, Indigenous people of color everywhere throughout our church to believe what they say on paper. We're great at that, social statements, and we engage all these social messages, but we see what they do. So as I was receiving the apology, they were doing some evil and awful things that were not consistent and incongruent with the things that they were saying. And that's just the reality. But I'm still here fighting. What I want to say to you now is one, I appreciate your honesty and your, your not just the attempt, but the accomplishment of that statement and that reality, but also what you've described as hard, emotional, physical labor and we don't deserve that grace, but I also recognize it as grace. And th thank you, Drew, for that. I, I really appreciate it. But the framework of this discussion and what I talked about earlier of something, a map that I had earlier about the respectability of politics, I realized how free I was from that map. Because at the same time, I was also trying to run as the ELCA secretary at that time. So historically, I would have played a politics that I'm not going to say this because then I, they may not elect me. And even though I didn't get elected, God still got the victory. I'm grateful to God for the opportunity, but I'm grateful even more that I didn't play a game that was harmful to my integrity and my own authenticity. And then it blessed me and gave me an opportunity to say yes to become program director for ELCA Campus Ministry. I could see the, the God in this, but uh, it was a tough time, but it was a time that proved and, and, and allowed me to discover the level of authenticity that I have, integrity mm -hmm. that I have, to have said the right thing, to have been a prophetic witness to the church, and to hold the church accountable, even though I still had a desire to operate and work within the system. And although I didn't exceed in that particular moment, I succeeded by unraveling and destroying that early myth in my life of respectability politics and destroying that map. And I'm grateful today. And it's a beautiful turn to campus ministry, because as you said, that's part of what led you to your first call. So the thing I'm really curious about from your work, what do you see as the value in campus ministry helping students to discover what's possible for their lives? On campuses, you have all kinds of religious ecclesiastical communities trying to pull students different ways and to indoctrinate them. 
But we have a blessed opportunity as Lutherans to be able to offer them something that many individuals have never experienced, God's grace. The very foundation of what we offer and bring as our theological witness into these communities is something that many people either can't see on TV, hear on the radio and music, but helping people to see the value that God loves them, that no matter what, despite anything that they may have engaged in or are becoming, and to help people to explore and to discover their own authenticity. I have a desire to expand that, not just to the 240 traditional schools that have been highly four-year public or private institutions, but I think we need to break down and go down the barrier of helping to engage community colleges and technical schools because it breaks down that barrier of classism to those that are discovering trades and engaging that. And I think that's where we also need to be. And I think also to be more inclusive, the ELCA is doing a restructuring right now. It says it has a desire to grow newer, grow younger, and more diverse. They've said that before. Keep saying it. Make it a confession until it becomes something that is a part of the trueness of who we are. But for me, until we reach out and engage more historically Black higher education institutions or predominantly Latinx institutions. We're missing opportunities. So we talk about discovery. The ELCA will discover that when it engages community colleges, engages technical schools, engages historically black colleges, universities, and predominantly Latinx higher education institutions and other institutions, it will find that which it's looking for. I appreciate you bringing up the ELCA in the sense that discovery is not just something that happens on an individual level, it's something that happens on an institutional level and a community level. And as individuals, we can help lead that discovery. You are sounding a whole lot like a director for Evangelical Mission now, which I know was your <laughs> former work in New York. Uh, what are some of the things that you discovered as a part of that role or that you were a part of in that work that is now shaping how you think about developing new campus ministry communities? For me, it was my time as a director for Evangelical Mission, where I was able to explore and to renew and to start things afresh in a way that didn't have the hindrances of some of the things of the past and or traditions, but to embrace the innovation and creativity, uh, engaging something new. We're talking about how we engage the newness of the ELCA. To me, is that role as a DEM or a Director for Evangelical Mission, which can break down those barriers of uh, white supremacy and white power, particularly relating to land ownership, property, and money. I saw more than ever as a DEM and sharing with my colleagues, when churches close, and there's white flight in certain areas and gentrification occurs. We as a church have to become, and I sought for us to become more countercultural, not just selling buildings and participate in these luxury condominiums that come up that outprice people and people have to move who've been living in communities for many, many years. The church gets an opportunity to participate and engage in a way that it gets to say to these 
developers, major developers, if you're going to be here, this is what we require as a part of this land, real estate, and economic redevelopment. It gives us the opportunity to do a lot of disruptive innovation, having that divine possibility of what could be created. We can't control everything that these developers have millions and billions of dollars to do, but the church can participate or not participate in ways that it can be intentional to say that we will engage these communities to have full economic redevelopment, full community, better policing. We have that power. We are definitely complicit to everything that's going on. That is not just complicity. That's all tied up with greed. Am I my neighbor's keeper? Yes. Yes, we are. There's a story of Uncle Nearest or Nearest Green, which is a powerful story of former enslaved human that taught Dak Daniels the whole distillery, distillation process. But Uncle Nearest, Nearest Green, was owned by a Lutheran pastor, Pastor Dan Call. A, a pastor, not just a, a parishioner. So a theological respondent, a pulpiteer, a Lutheran heavyweight, if you will, one who is supposed to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving all and freeing people and liberating them was a slave owner and took advantage of one of the most profitable processes, the distillation process there. And look how Jack Daniels benefited from it. And we're just now learning or discovering the history of this black man, formerly enslaved, Nearest Green, Uncle Nearest. And I think now there's a whiskey out in his name. But my point is, when we talk about complicity, that our Lutheran tradition has a historical complicity to slavery and things that have been evil in white supremacy in these yet-to-be United States of America. We, we are not being paid for any of this. There's no advertising on this podcast. But the Uncle Nearest bourbon is very good. I can recommend it. And if I remember right, the story is that the owner of the distillery is actually a descendant of Nearest. Is, yes. is that right? And doing um, a lot of great work in their own way, a lot of reparations and don't even have to, right? They're, the reparations really need to come from the Jack Daniels company. Helping others discover their freedom and their value is coming out of that particular company. So we all talk about being lifelong learners at some level, which is an act of discovery. I'm curious, now that you've been in ministry for 26, 20 seven years, what you're discovering at this stage of life about yourself that is new or exciting or challenging? So I grew up in a track family. That's my family sport. That's something that we learned. And I grew up until I stretched my Achilles tendon I was going to be a track star, but I started off being a sprinter. And that's how I see a lot of my life or saw a lot of my life in my early years. But what I'm learning now is in order for me to have the longevity that is necessary for me to accomplish and to do more, there's a need for me to shift in some of that understanding of how I engage as not just as a sprinter, but to see a longer game and become more of a marathoner or a long distance runner. And that's how I'm kind of seeing that thing for my life is discovering that I need to develop a tolerance and an ability and an, a stamina to see the long game for a longer period of time to affect greater change. And the other reality is I can't run as fast as I used to. So I've got to pace myself. And, and, and I would honestly say, as much as I said I loved being a DEM, it took a lot of energy out of me. When I ended that particular call, I was exhausted. I didn't realize how physically challenged I had become. And so what I've discovered now is that you can pace yourself. 
I've had to learn that even in this pandemic. And when you talk about just this one year that I've been here in ministry, my first six to eight weeks, I was traveling every week. I was showing up at all the regional conferences. And that was a part of my history of sprinting and making things happen and going. But this pandemic has slowed me in a way to be more methodical and strategic and more engaging. And I feel that I have a greater ability to offer more wisdom I am healthier, I look better, <laughs> and I feel better in a lot of ways. And the benefit is that I've discovered that people respond to me even better because I'm not as exhausted. So you get a better Lamont. So I'm probably living literally my best life right now. So the last thing, we're trying to ask each of our guests, what do you wish that you knew about vocation when you were a kid? Ooh, this is tough. It's actually vulnerable and personal in a lot of ways. I have found, and I wish I had known this and prepared myself for this, the people that I've done the most for or tried to help the most have been some of those that have stabbed me in the back and have mistreated me in ways. And I don't understand it. I don't like it. I don't know how it, I don't like how it feels. I've developed a a stamina. I don't like the use of the word callous, but maybe a coating, a covering that I'm able to withstand and endure the hardness. But that is one of the greatest discoveries. I would think that if I've helped you, you know, if I've made you, encourage you in some kind of way, that there would be a bond that would be created of love and appreciation that is not detrimental. But I have found, it's almost like if I married you, if I married you, if I baptized your children, if I came to see you when you were in the hospital, those individuals, for whatever reason that is, that seem to turn their backs on me. And I wish I had known that a little bit earlier Uh, in life to at least prepare myself for the hurt of, of ministry. But I was, again, always still blessed to serve. You've heard me say it. I was always hippopotamus happy and peacock proud to serve and to engage. But in reality, if I were to think about something that I wish I had known and prepared for better, it was the, the ability for people to turn on you. And that's just a part of life. That's a part of human pain. Hurt people hurt other people. For those who don't feel called specifically to the church, what advice would you give them about discovery? Be open to divine possibilities, to get excited about the awesomeness of God, and to be open to flow and go where God is leading you. We all have a call. We all have an experience with the divine that is leading us on some pathway which is a map, which is a roadway, which is a part of your journey, and to enjoy the process and to be open to engaging in that process so that you can experience the fulfillment of all that life has in store for you with divine care, with divine grace, and divine love that covers you as you flow and go. Well, Lamont, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for blessing us with your wisdom and your stories and yourself and helping us to discover some more about the church and about our own calls. So thank you for being here. I am so 
grateful for the Reverend Lamont Anthony Wells for joining us today. Not only because I respect your leadership so much and your wisdom, but because of the way that you embodied the story of discovery for us today. You brought perhaps one of the most important gifts that I know of, which is vulnerability to the whole process, to this conversation, to your sharing, to your journey, and the ways that your discoveries have led to things that weren't always encouraging, but that sometimes brought hurt or disappointment. So grateful for the discovery of things like reparations conversations, that part of our vocation, our purpose, our meaningful life-giving work for the world is sometimes not just apologizing, but working to make right through recompense, through repairing. After all, that is the origin word of reparations, repairing to the best that we can the damage that has been done. These are the kinds of things that discovery can lead us to. Opportunities in churches, in vocations, in jobs, in families, in relationships that we never thought possible, but also discoveries within ourselves and our communities of things that we never saw before, even as they were so close to us. I'm also just so grateful that we can have a conversation that naturally leads to bourbon references because that's just such a good time for most, especially for me. But in all seriousness, even the example of someone whose story was almost lost, of Uncle Nearest, and the way that through one of his descendants, his story has been reclaimed in a way that is changing the way the world knows about this person. And that we, as people of faith, I as a Lutheran pastor, have to wrestle with how one Lutheran minister long ago lost sight of a vocation of liberation and enslaved someone and took away a legacy, took away a future, took away a life. So now what I encourage us all to think through is what can we discover? What opportunities can we discover? What guilt can we discover? What hope can we discover that we can wrestle with that might open for us new and meaningful and abundant life? What can we discover that we have never seen as possible before? In what ways can hope take root in our lives so that discovery, instead of being something of colonization, of claiming things that aren't our own, instead becomes an opportunity to celebrate with others, to lift the vocations of others and ourselves together for something that's meaningful and wonderful beyond even our own comprehension. Because that's what God's purpose is. It's transcendent. We're a part of it, but so is everybody else. And together we participate in something that is meaningful and life-giving for the world. So I hope you on this journey of discovery have found some of the life that I found in Lamont's sharing and vulnerability. And I hope you also are seeing ways that you too can join in the discovery process because there is something holy and hopeful about discovering what seems possible, even out of the most impossible circumstances. Join us next week to dive into discernment so we can begin to evaluate the things we've discovered alongside our own ideals, our own values, and see what our priorities really look like here as people of faith. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment in Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasso. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.